Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Saturn Vox podcast, where discussions of philosophy meet the liminal space we weave in dreams. This is your host and devout malefic stan dedicated to the art of suffering better, Michaela Ann. This week, we are welcoming a very special guest, Diana Rose, writer and relational astrologer extraordinaire. Diana graciously agreed to come on the pod to share her life-nourishing wisdom on that deathbringer we all know so well, that most great of planets, Lord Saturn. Diana enlivens the conversation on Saturn with grace and wisdom well-earned through earnest experience and the allowance of devotional trust shared with this mighty sphere, he who rules bones, structures, and limitations. Does Saturn enjoy our suffering? What does it mean to be in right relations with all conscious beings? And how does this create a praxis of right action in turn? What can we learn about Saturn's role in the act of life's nourishment by contemplating the often forgotten association Lord Saturn has with the element water? How can we use astrology to help determine which planets are best to start developing devotional relationships with? All this and more in today's episode of Saturn Rocks. Don't forget to check out the Patreon-exclusive episode which includes the difference between Mars and Saturn, tips and tricks on planetary remediation, and how to develop a practice which honors both Jupiter and Saturn. Diana has also graciously offered discount codes to the classes you can find in the episode description below. So head on over to the Patreon for access to this exclusive content. To find more on SaturnVox, check out their Instagram and Twitter at SaturnVox, or visit their website www.saturnvox.com. Um, I'm Diana. I am a relational astrologer. That's the moniker that I've started using for myself after conversations with my dear friend, Pallas K. Augustine, and my colleague, Michael J. Morris. Um, and I am a human person trying to figure out how to human a bit better, um, how to be a little bit more in love with this experience of being human here on planet Earth. And astrology is the primary Mm, language, modality, tool, poet, poesis, whatever you want to call it. Um, at this point, uh, for myself and for the clients that I see, I see clients in practice. I um, teach, kind of. I facilitate experiences would maybe be one way of putting it. Um, and I guess it would probably be useful to define relational astrology for folks. Um, this is not like relationship astrology. Like I'm not out here doing a bunch of synastry and composites. I actually kind of have an allergy um, to <laughs> doing that kind of work. Um, but what I mean when I say relational astrology is uh, an approach to astrology that is explicit 
in engaging with the celestial beings as beings, right? So it's uh, kind of a continuation or an extension or an alternate word for animist. Um, and in a way, it's more, both broader and more specific than animist. It's not just saying all things have consciousness. Um, it's saying this is an astrology that's about being in relationship with. Um, so that presupposes that you're relating with other beings that are relatable, that is to say, have consciousness that can be related to and related with. Um, and through that lens, it's much less about um, fatalism, but it is very much about right-sizing, which means accepting what is yours and what is not, accepting what your niche is and what your niche is not, um, ecologically, spiritually, worky, whatever, like all of these different arenas where uh, niche becomes relevant um, and trying to be a good relation, like trying to be a good occupant of your niche in relationship with all of those that are in the web with you. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So it's like being in right relationship with yourself reflects being in mm -hmm. right relationship with the other. Mm-hmm. And can even extend to things like right relationship with the event or like right relationship yes. with a question if we're like bringing things like horary into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. And it's, you know, it's not a, it's not trying to define what right relationship is. It's doing the um, often messy and heartbreaking and confusing work of ascertaining what the most right thing is in a given moment for a given person inside of a given context. Um, so that relationality also becomes about like relativism in a way, um, you know, relate and relative both having that rela bit at the beginning um, and esta yeah, establishing relationship with a very long list of possible relatable things um, that facilitates a, hmm, I don't really want to say more comfortable because it's not about comfort, um, but a more embedded and alive and erotic in the life promoting sense uh, way of existing. Oh, I love that. I love that you brought that up because that was actually one of the things that I found so inspiring when I first kind of decided to put on the student hat for astrology was it really opened up this metaphysics of, oh, we all have different things that make us feel safe or we all have different ways of mm -hmm. expressing our emotions. And it's not that like I'm broken or this person is broken, but that if I'm trying to get them to exist the way I exist, that's already me not being in right relation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think like what you're speaking to, I think is a huge thing. I was just thinking about this, um, this morning, actually, like waking up at the crack of dawn, like taking notes in the notes app <laughs> in my phone kind of thing. Um, of the... I, you know, it like we can use the language of compatibility, I think, for this. Um, but there is also the language of self-recognition and other recognition, understanding that, you know, on a really large scale, that differentiation is, yeah, yeah, whatever. Is it real? Like, I don't know. Um, but in terms of our lived experience, like to be able to recognize like, oh, it's not that I'm wrong. 
And it's not that this other person is like capital W mm-hmm. wrong. It's that in this moment, there's an incompatibility with how we are engaging with the interface between us. Right. And so, you know, I was thinking about it this morning and specific relationship to Saturn because I'm in the middle of um, facilitating a Saturnian experience. I don't I don't really like saying that I'm teaching a class because it's not academic, um, but it is educational. <laughs> I don't know. But one of the thoughts that I'm, I was having is related to. I mean, I guess it's not no longer a surprise if I'm talking about it on a podcast, but it's it's an additional bonus thing that I want to give students um, at the end of the class. That's um, sort of a guide towards uh, continuing relating with Saturn, whatever that looks like for them. But including the very important caveat that like not everybody is well suited to every you know a specific form of relating with Saturn. Like not everybody is well suited to like. Um, having an altar at which you do prayers every Saturday. (laughs) Um, You know, like for some people that will be a negative um, or at least not generative variant. Um, You know, for some folks, it's much more uh, useful and nutritive to engage with the things in the world that are ruled by Saturn rather than Saturn directly. And a huge part of that is, you know, how are different how are different psyches oriented towards like the good bad divide, you know, how are different psyches oriented towards concepts of authority and concepts of like immovable, immutable authority, right? Because that's so much of what Saturn as a being embodies, and it's like, okay, well, maybe go hang out with rocks instead of trying to have a direct, a more or less direct conversation with Saturn. Oh, I love this. Um, So you're saying like based off of where Saturn or like what sign Saturn is in and what planets it may or may not be aspecting, that's going to affect the way they should or should not attempt to do their Saturn work. Yes. Yeah. And it's and sometimes it's really obvious based on the chart. And sometimes it's actually more that somebody has um, like it might not actually be a Saturn thing. It might be a Mars thing. Mm hmm right? It might be a sun thing. Um, It might even be a Venus thing, right? There might be other things in the chart that end up um, filtering Saturn um, or filtering uh, the concept of Saturn in a way that ends up being not generative for that person if direct engagement is what is initially engaged with. It's like sometimes you have to do preemptive work Mm -hmm. before you can do the direct work. And this is even something like whenever I was um, like first opened this particular experience up for people to join. Like, I was like, this isn't for you if you are completely in freeze state when you think about engaging with Saturn. Like, there's other stuff you should do first. And maybe you should, maybe it's not ever going to be right for you to directly engage with Saturn. That's totally okay. Yeah. That's totally fine. (laughs) So. I don't even work with the god form of Saturn except apotropaically. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I know, like, in my own like journey through my Sati Sati Saturn return experience, I came to a similar understanding just because my Saturn conjunct moon is in rulership. Like it is still Mm. in Aquarius. So some of the things that Saturn expected of me to hold and carry, I found was very different as I started doing my Saturn consults with all of my Saturn and Pisces friends. And it was like a lot more soft, a lot more. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I don't want to say coddling because I don't think Saturn ever coddles, but there was definitely like a sweeter softness to some of those Mm -hmm. readings than when I was even giving other Aquarius Saturn people their reading. It's a lot more like you can carry this weight, so you have to, versus you need to stop running away from the weight. It'll be fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. No. Uh, that that's such a like that's such a great example. So it's like I'm a Saturn in Capricorn native with Saturn in the first in a day chart. So like Saturn is Saturning hard um, <laughs> for me, and you know one of the things that really unlocked Saturn for me. Um, was actually like kind of a, a UPG moment that happened. Um, this was before Saturn entered Aquarius, so I was still within my personal Saturn return um, experience, but I was af- it was after my exact experience. And it was the um, sort of, like, like I engaged with Saturn as a grandmother figure, basically. Like, so something in me flipped the switch from um, like devouring old man to cold, distant, but like invested grandmother. Mm-hmm. And that changed everything about how I understood Saturn and how I was able to engage with Saturn and how I was able to talk about Saturn with other people. Um, like there's, like I think about the nocturnality of Capricorn, the, um, you know, the mythos of the Capricorn, like the goat fish, right? The merfish mm-hmm. um, or the mer goat, excuse me. Um, and the like the traversing of water but also the climbing of the mountain and that sort of combination that is so it's so easy to forget the water part (laughs) and it's so easy to just think about the mountain part especially um you know over over the decades and not really centuries but especially like 20th century like a lot of the removal of the chimeric aspects of zodiacal symbols, right? So it's like we go from having a centaur to having an archer to having just a bow and arrow. We go from having a mer goat to having a mountain goat to having just like a set of horns or whatever. Like it's not, or even just sometimes people will just use like a mountain image to represent Capricorn. And it's just like, but the water, you all, you you have to remember the water part, right? And the, the nutritive quality of water. And it's like Saturn and Capricorn even though you know Capricorn is technically a dry sign, the the animal image, the the zoological image, is an amphibious creature. Mm-hmm. Do you think you could make some more commentary on Saturn's water quality? Because now that you mention it, Aquarius is a water bearer as well. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so okay. Whew, I have so many thoughts on this. <laughs> like endless thoughts on this, right? Um, You know, one of the things that I think about quite a bit and like sometimes I'll just like be in the bath just like completely (laughs) gagged on this is, you know, like so when I was a kid, um, one of my early repeating dream experiences uh, was um, like swimming around undersea mountain ranges. And yeah, I mean, it's like when we look at like, my brain is not going to give me the correct term for this right now, but like the the fault lines basically where um, seafloor is created, like there's the seafloor spread and then there's the seafloor joining together and like underwater volcanoes and like all of this kind of stuff. It's like, that's, that's underwater terraforming, right? Oh. And you know, and like, this is actually one of the things I've been talking about with Saturn and Pisces babies and like sometimes just overwhelmed Pisces babies in general, (laughs) which is that even the ocean has a floor, right? Like even the ocean has a bottom, like the, the ocean has like an end point and that holdingness 
like the holdingness on any in any kind of terrain, whether it be above ground, um, in caves, underwater, whatever, like that structure is Capricorn, right? The bowl that holds the lake is mm-hmm. Capricorn. Oh, I love this. Right. Um, you know, on a very small scale, like with the Capricorn cancer axis, it's like we see Capricorn as the bucket and ca- and cancer is the milk in the bucket. Mm. Right. And it's like, yeah, you could probably like carry some amount of milk, just like cupping it in your hands, even then you're relying on Capricorn because what's on the inside of your hands that gives them structure bones. <clears throat> right. <laughs> but it's a lot more effective to have a more enduring object that holds the precious thing that holds the life giving and nu- nutritive thing. Right. And so then when I think about the mergoat, especially, you know, the like to imagine yourself inside of the form of the mergoat and then to imagine yourself like like it's such a struggle to be on land when half of you is a tail. But when half of you is a tail, swimming is a fucking joyride, right? Like, you know, I remember um, when I was in like sixth grade, I was on swim team for like a hot minute. It was great. But, you know, one of the things that we would do is like we would train with like little flippers, Mm -hmm. right? Like that was like part of the training of like getting your legs doing the right thing, I guess. And just like the speed of having like actual aquatic bottom ends basically and it's just like oh there's such a freedom in that experience mm-hmm. and you know to be some something that is swimming you're being held by the water which is being held by land beautiful and it's almost like without that container then all of the goodness would just spill out and seep every which way without any clear mm-hmm. direction or ability to nourish in general anyway yes yes exactly and like when we think about this with aquarius like aquarius is atmosphere Right. Because if we think about the water bear, you know, it's like clouds, clouds bear water. (laughs) Right. But then there's literally just like this gas, gaseous dome that surrounds our planet without which all of us couldn't be here. Like we wouldn't have the the sort of, you know, we don't experience it as a cottony suffocation because it's not suffocating. It's life promoting. Right. But there is this sort of like cottony intangible to human senses thing that allows us to live here. And that like create like very clearly delineates like where the life part of the planet ends and begins. I love that. So if 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 Capricorn is the ocean floor, the Earth's crust and mantle that gives us all a container to live in, then Aquarius is the atmosphere that caps it all in so that we don't just go floating off into space. <laughs> Yes, 100%. And you can even think about like, especially with the way that the layers of the earth, you know, it's like there's this like magma layer upon which the, you know, the tectonic plates are moving around, right? And it's like, as soon as that liquid becomes solid, that's the Capricorn boundary, right? We can't like, you know, I know that there have been like, there are attempts at drilling down into that core. And, you know, it's part of sci-fi novels and like all of that kind of thing. Um, but we can't live down there. It's a, it's a bit too much pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like, you know, just, and just like when we, when we leave the atmosphere, we also can't live out there. It's It's also also too too much much pressure. pressure. (laughs) Exactly. Right. And so we can think about Saturn as not just the pressure, but the boundary between livable pressure and literally unendurable pressure. Oh, I love that. Because I'm always trying to say, like, what I, through my own, like, workings with him, it seems more like his end goal is the middle way to, like, Mm -hmm. figure out that sweet spot. 
it it's not that he says no to pleasure. In fact, if you are indulging in too much self-suffering, he will say no to the suffering and say you need to start giving yourself pleasure. Right. I mean, like I think about what is sustainable, right? Like Saturn is very much about sustain. And like, you know, I, I'm reminded of, um, I keep getting this reference a little bit mixed up, but I, my partner told me a story that I think Ali Alomi maybe shared on one of his podcasts or like on his Patreon or something about um, the grief of the angel of death, right? And it's just like the angel of death doesn't want to be face to face to people at the end of their life. And so at a certain point, God is like, it's okay, you don't have to show your face, you can be invisible now, right? And there's something with Saturn, Saturn doesn't want things to end. Mm -hmm. Right? Saturn is very concerned with figuring out the longest possible. I mean, whatever, maybe Saturn at some points is just like, this has to be done now, right? Like, God of death, reaper, whatever. It's like, we can't let the but what is the limit, right? It's like, how long do we let the wheat stay in the field? Like, how long can we do that and successfully have a maximum harvest? Mm -hmm. Right? We're not harvesting it early if we don't have to. And we're sure as hell not harvesting it late because that's, you know, we don't want moldy, moldy grain through the winter. Right? And if anything, it's like Saturn points out where unsustainability has appeared. It's not sustainable to only ever be like high pressure workaholic. It's not sustainable. It damages the physical body and the emotional body and the spirit body. Like all of the, all the bodies get damaged. If they're not nourished, pleasure is nourishing, right? Like food is nourishing. Minerals, they're good for you. Who would have thought? <laughs> oh, minerals. Are minerals Saturnian? Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> oh, I love this. Something else that I really enjoyed that you brought up is like Saturn revealing a personal face to you. Mm -hmm. So like if your personal face is the grandmother, uh, mine is also not the like skinny, starving, like old man that most people think of. I have a much more like devilish half man, half animal Mm -hmm. kind of king but also needs to be restrained because that ecstasy can be too chaotic and mm -hmm. you know it's like and then the chains that he wears becomes a self-sacrifice to make sure that the ecstasy doesn't blow the top off of mm -hmm. human living <laughs> yeah that reminds me of um, Odysseus tying himself to the mast it is very like that, yeah. Yeah, like I, I absolutely want to hear these sirens singing and I absolutely do not want to be slain by them. <laughs> I want my cake and eat it too, so I'll do the yeah. middle way here. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, I love that, I love that. And I, like as you were speaking, I was also being reminded of the green man a bit, right? Like, you know, this is I think one of the things that gets lost in the um, civilizing <laughs> of astrology right it's just like all of these beings like the planets the natures of the signs um like all of them have um you know for lack of a better word like a wildness to them right like they you know if like i think about marrow for example to like crack open a bone and suck out its marrow right like that is a very um uncivilized thing to do in polite company <laughs> um <laughs> and also it's very saturnian like i i don't want just like the muscle meat you know i don't want um just like the 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 thin broth like i want the very heart of the thing that generates the, the thing's aliveness 
Mm -hmm. right? It's like if Mars is the blood, Saturn is the marrow that makes the blood, right? And there's something very visceral about that. Literally, yeah. Yeah. That image is definitely tantalizing in my mind. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I do wonder if there's not also like a slight lesson of um, don't let anything go to waste there too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nose to tail is, you know, it's like, how do you thoroughly respect the death of a creature exactly. whose death facilitates your life? You know, it's like that life, death, life, death, life, death, um, like circling, cycling, spiral, spiralic dance. It's like to completely consume that which has died is to completely um, accept that your own life depends on death. Ugh. Oh. Right? Like to make, to make the pesto with the radish greens and not just eat the radishes. You know, like yes, to make exactly. it more vegetarian friendly, you know, like what is what is the total um, honoring of the life that is necessary to end so that yours can continue? There is also that like through death, life is nourished and there is this like deep mm -hmm. um, message of rejuvenation through death or like why death is necessary mm -hmm. um like one of my favorite saturn myths is the greatness of saturn and how he says in that one um that he doesn't even really want to cause suffering but this is his duty like to delineate karma and that to me has always kind of been this like, look, no, even Saturn doesn't want things to die. Like you were saying earlier, he just knows when it has to die because it's no longer going to be serving anything then. It's now rotting life. It's not supporting life. Right. And there's also something about, again, like I return to the concept of sustainability. I'm currently, um, I'm currently reading the third of three books by Neil Schusterman that are part of this series called Scythe, I think, or the Ark of the Scythe, whatever. It's a YA novel trilogy. <laughs> I love YA novels. Cute. They're like candy. Um, but it's also like, it's dealing with like pretty heavy themes. Teenagers have heavy emotions. <laughs> Yo, man, it's like I went to visit my grandparents in December and was looking through like my old like journals and like high school papers and stuff like that. And I was just like, did why did nobody check on me? I was not good. I was not okay. <laughs> like looking at this poem that won an award, it is were you not concerned? Okay. Um, I'm concerned for past teenage me. So um, glad you made it, kid. So in any case, um, in this in this book series, um, humans have figured out how to be immortal. They've figured out how to like figure, you know, and part of the figuring out is that there's um, like a super intelligent um, AI cloud being that basically controls the whole world. There's no governments anymore. It's very, it's, it's interesting. It's really interesting. But one of the things about it is like death needs to continue to exist as part of human awareness and human consciousness. And it's not just death because, you know, unchecked population growth means that there's no way to sustain a population on, with a given environmental context. Mm -hmm. But the reality of death being philosophically and meaningfully important for human consciousness to know that like, yeah, I could live to a thousand, but on my 40th birthday, I could get gleaned by a scythe, right? <laughs> like who knows, right? And there's, there's something, um, you know, one of the most life affirming things I've ever done is death meditation. 
So did you do that through like a Tibetan death meditation or? I did it in a super weird way as guided by, um, um, oh my God, Forrest. What is her first name? Anna Forrest, who is a really hardcore yoga person. Okay. So intense. She's such an intense yoga person. I, I think at the time that I did it, she was like in her 60s or 70s or something like that. Um, and she wrote this totally wild book about her life and yoga and she's she's very far from the fluffy kind of yoga people like very very hard-edged um and I had this distinct memory of starting to read it the year after I graduated from college I got to the point where she's suggesting to do this death meditation in my memory the book says if you're not ready for this don't do it and I was like I'm not ready and I took the book back to the library about five years later I check out the book again that sentence is not in the book. <laughs> um, Saturn just implanted it in your mind because it wasn't exactly. time. <laughs> it wasn't time. But I, I was in the middle of doing a lot of, um, a lot of, mm, how do I, how do I really want to put this? Like uh, a lot of searching. I was doing a lot of searching work and a lot of like kind of personally guided visionary work anyway at the time. And so I was like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to do this. And I did it and it totally changed the trajectory of my life. Like I don't recommend doing self-guided death meditation, but that's what I did. <laughs> so you did it just through reading um, a visual exercise in her book and then just sat down and did it in your own brain. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's impressive. I mean, I have Neptune conjunct Saturn. So there are certain kind of visionary stuff is actually quite easy for me. The harder thing is... Um, ensuring that I have a good container for it. And sure. I was very lucky that I had a good container. And um, yeah, like I think about that. I'm like, wow, that could have been really bad, but it wasn't. So <laughs> I keep saying that I'm going to do something like that when Saturn like officially ingresses into Pisces. Like, can I design a safe way to like bury myself underground for a few hours mm. and be mm -hmm. like, resurrected right when the ingress happens damn yeah that's just an idea i'm playing i'm not saying i'm actually gonna do that i'm just saying mm -hmm. i've played with that idea a little bit <laughs> yeah yeah uh that sounds pretty sick i feel like for some reason i'm thinking float tank i will i love float tanks oh i should just do a float tank because it um removes all of your senses and there's that ego death that you can do in that as well and it's much safer than trying to figure out how to calculate how much oxygen I would have <laughs> before yeah. someone needs to. Uh-huh. Or like having like one of those like, you know, um, like old burial strategy of like you do actually have like kind of a blowhole. I thought Just about in that. case the dead person isn't dead. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Saturn in Aquarius. How hard yeah. can I go? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, there is there is something about um, figuring out when difficulty or challenge is generative, useful, instructional um, strengthening, and when it's a form of self-flagellation, and when that self-flagellation is useful, and when it's not, right? Like, like one thing that um, like strong Saturnian influence can uh, facilitate, I guess, is accepting suboptimal. Right. And continuously accepting suboptimal. And I think this is where, you know, Saturn as like, hey, when's the last time you had an orgasm? 
Did you have a nice breakfast yet? <laughs> Are you starving? Maybe you should not, right? It's like um, suboptimal actually gets in the way of strengthening. And also certain forms of strengthening are going to be a lot more hardcore than most people uh, would be comfortable with engaging with. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're bad. They're just hardcore. Yeah, well, that's relates back to what you were saying earlier, is that not everybody should engage with Saturn in the same way. And like the way that I have chosen to engage with it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the advice I'm going to give to like my Saturn and Pisces friends or mm -hmm. even people who have another Saturn conjunct moon, but it's in a different sign. Like you're still mm -hmm. going to have a different relationship with the planet than I did. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, if you can feel it, if you don't feel like you can feel it out, then doing something like going to an astrologer who specializes in, you know, ask, like, I love your idea of relational astrology and can say, like, this is your best way of relating with this planet. Mm -hmm. That would probably be better than just saying, oh, well, I see my one friend has this Saturn practice, so I'm going to just adopt it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's so, it's so personal. Um, you know, and it's, it's one of these weird things where it's just like, I didn't grow up in a church, but I grew up surrounded by churchy people because um, I grew up in kind of a Bible belty part of the country. And I was always like, yeah, my family was definitely not that, but I was surrounded by it. And so every now and then I'm like, okay, as a relational astrologer, am I doing the astrology version of you should have a personal relationship with Jesus? Um, <laughs> and it's like, well, like kind of, but like, like not in a like I'm going to tell you what your personal relationship should look like sure but more like show that it's possible and that it can be quite lovely um to not just regurgitate what you've read in books um or only ever see a planetary spirit um as like I don't know insert uh like I don't know insert like mm, not very nuanced archetype image here. <laughs> um, well, it's like we were saying earlier, if you think about Saturn as only that starving figure all the time, then you're not maybe not going to understand how you need to apply it in your own life. Mm -hmm. If you are already a person who says no to pleasure and you only mm -hmm. view Saturn as the starving, you know, limp mm -hmm. old man. Like ascetic like hermit. Yeah. Yeah. Then you'll think that you need to keep saying no to pleasure and that's just going to make your, your suffering. That's not suffering better essentially. Yeah. I mean, it's like suffering for the sake of suffering, um, which is not inherently noble. No. Yeah. Do you, do you have a, a moment in your practice in which you realized that the relational aspect was something that you were going to start emphasizing or was this similar to Saturn, a story that unfolded over time? Yeah, it's kind of an old overtime thing in a way, because like I'll look back at my old work before I was more explicitly forward about this. And I'm like, oh, it's been here the whole time. Um, it's just actually understanding it. Um, and I think understanding it actually came through working with this person, Captolia Eaton, who is a... Um, what does she call herself now? Uh, an identity alchemist or something, whatever. Like, you know, like a huge, a huge part of it. Like, I think the, the important preamble to that is like a huge part of my work. Um, at a certain point I had, uh, 
mm, capital E experience um, where it was made clear that like uh, that, I don't, how do I put this? It's like, it, like it made clear how much of like me being here is not about like me as an individual, but about my work and the way that the work can come through me and wanting to ensure that my work can find the people that it needs to find. Right. And so that shifted my relationship with certain forms of visibility and presence, which I struggle with all of the time. Both of my luminaries are in the 12th house. Like if somebody gave me a million dollars in a cabin in the woods, you would not see me again. (laughs) Um, Bye. Right. Um, But understanding that part of my responsibility, Saturn word is um, to make my, whatever the work is like sufficiently findable by the people who it can help. Um, then I was like, okay, that means I have to take like publicing more seriously. And so Capitolia has been very influential for me in terms of like, what does it mean to public be relatively public, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I was in a little like kind of class of hers and the concept of like the lover was like very, very loud for me. Um, And I was really uncomfortable with that of just like, okay, I I understand that this is like, it's in my chart. Like if you look at my chart, like Venus is very in charge of a lot of things using multiple different techniques. Um, (laughs) And then I have an exalted Jupiter in the seventh. Um, And, you know, recognizing that I'm a relationship person, like full stop, like interpersonal relationships, but then also like with the world, like I've always interacted with, um, I don't know, animals, stones, plants, books, right? Like, like with a, without the objectifying quality. Um, and like, it took me a while to perceive that that was a difference that I wasn't objectifying the more than human or other than human in the way that other people seemed to be doing. Um, And so coming into acceptance of myself as a relationship person directly fed into being able to understand that that's what I was already doing in client sessions. Um, And that, you know, it's like, like for a while I was like thinking in terms of like animism, but not necessarily outright calling myself an animist astrologer. And then it was in conversations uh, with my friend Palace and my colleague Michael J. Morris that really kind of solidified relational as the adjective. Oh, I love it. And I love, uh, in a way, it, it, it does like highlight the responsibility that Saturn brings to all of that Jupiterian and Venusian stuff that you were highlighting. Is like, how can I make sure that we are taking a middle stance that results in both people getting their needs met and, or Mm -hmm. not even people, but like me and the land, me Mm -hmm. and, you know, the plants in my garden. Mm -hmm. That's a whole relationship give and take aspect. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, thinking deeply about concepts of reciprocity and, intra-species responsibility Mm. um, have been really influential. Um, You know, like there, there are ideas that come out of like indigenous authors, like, um, like uh, uh, Robin Wall Kimmer, Patty Crowick, or even Jack D. Forbes, where like this understanding of, or like a cosmological orientation, wherein Um, the nature of relations is about responsibility, not domination. 
Um, yes. And, you know, like, I also, oh, I'm being reminded of this book that I read years ago, um, Silence Mastias, uh, Mastasis. I'm not actually sure how to pronounce their last name, but they wrote this tiny, tiny little book. It's like 50 pages or something um, all called Walking the Heart Road. And it's all about um, sort of different ways to be in relationship with deity. And it was the first time I'd had it so clearly shown to me, like the different ways that humans can relate with divine beings. You know, and like the the ones that they included were like um, teacher, student, parent, child, and then lover. I think those were the three that they emphasized. It's been a bit since I read it. Um, so there might be other things in there that I just can't, I'm not recalling. But um, <laughs> actually, I see it. It's like on my, it's on my shelf right there. I was like, oh, is it in my storage unit? No, it's on my bookshelf. Um, yeah. So it's just um, tiny, tiny, tiny book. I have no idea who silence Mastias, Mastias. Look how beautiful Nastus. the cover is. Yeah, I have I have no idea where, who this person actually like who this person is besides this single book of theirs that I have consumed. Um, but it's like the the subtitle is uh, the devotional path for spirit workers, right? And you know, before I read this book, um, back in my days of being a Reiki practitioner, um, my Reiki teacher is like a bhakti. Uh, devotee kind of person um Mm -hmm. and so like devotion and like sort of to have a loving relationship with divine beings you know loving relationship either you know is it rooted in learning is it rooted in um you know like that parent-child relationship with idea was really important to me in terms of um understanding that reciprocity between me like a little like a little mortal (laughs) like human and like a being that is so big that there's no way my brain is ever going to comp like fully comprehend the nuance and infinity of that being it's like there's no way that I'm ever going to give a divine being something that is equal to what that being can provide for me but a parent is not mad at the four-year-old who's like offering is like a hand scrawled, like crayon drawing of a monster from his dream. Right. Like the parent (laughs) ideally is delighted. Like, Oh my God, look at this terrible drawing that my kid made. Isn't it amazing? (laughs) Right. Okay. Wait, but though there are plenty of people who have beloved interactions with a deity so Mm -hmm. do you think that in those instances the deity becomes both parent and lover and is this one of those like weird the spirits are okay with incest things and I think it totally depends it totally depends right and so like that's one of the things that like silence talks about in this text is just like you know with different deities you're gonna have different kinds of relationships just like with different human beings you're gonna have different kinds of relationships um but you know like like the point being though it's like Like I'm not like my current incarnational form is not equal to like the uh, divinity of Saturn. It just isn't Mm -hmm. like it's it just like uh, using the metrics that I have available to me. I don't see these things as equal at all whatsoever. Um, And also like the way that I give back to Saturn isn't a one-to-one it's like it's akin to like the student giving the teacher an apple or um the child giving the parent a scrawled out drawing that they put their heart into you know and so there's something about this you know i don't have lover relationships with any divine beings um so i can't really speak to that from a personal experience place um but 
like the lover relationship is not, let me, let me change that. It's like, I don't have, um, like sexual lover relationships with any divine beings, but I very much have the sort of like, almost like ecstatic love relationships Mm -hmm. with divine beings. And there's, um, there's something about like, the, the moment where I accepted I was a relationship person in terms of like my one-to-one human romantic relationships, like no longer self-shaming myself for being that kind of bitch. <laughs> um, and then like also fully accepting like, oh no, this is not just about my romantic human relationships. This is about my relationships with everything to differing degrees and with different nuances depending on the situation and the other beings involved right but it's like that's just a perpetually true thing and for me orienting to the other beings that you know either share this earth or like you know intermingle with this earth from this sort of like um lover or devotional or relational perspective has made it much much easier to be here right what it comes down to is like as a very 12th house person, like uh, there are days when I look around and I'm like, did I opt in to being here? Like, did I actually, was there informed consent for this incarnation thing? Like, (laughs) I don't know if there was, I really don't know if there was. Um, But if I can turn towards the world and be like, I'm in relationship with the world, Mm -hmm. I'm in relationship with these beings. And as somebody who is in relationship with that means I have delights and responsibilities here, then being here is much more experientially lovely. So so it sounds like your your practice, your magic practice and your commitment to establishing relationships with those unseen um, really helped open your heart and like heal a lot of the things that Saturn, targets for healing already. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think of the planets, Saturn was the first one that I entered into like connective, like deeply connective relationship with. Mm-hmm. So I think that's important too. When you're, when you're developing a practice like this, like let's say somebody takes their chart and they do they want to pick, is it more like um, remediation where it's like we want to pick the ones that need help? Is it mm. let's get a relationship with all seven and maybe the outer planets too because why not? Or what's your take on that? Um, my take is that the like order of operations for somebody who isn't going to do a whole bunch of techniques, right, um, would be the ruler of the ascendant if the ruler of the ascendant is at least neutrally placed. If the ruler of the ascendant is um, harshed, like if their mellow is harsh, <laughs> um, then I would look to the sect light if the sect light is relatively well placed. Um, and I would also look to the benefic of sect. And... Like those, those three, you know, it's like the, the ruler of the ascendant, the sect light and the benefic of sect. Those are kind of the planets that are most, um, life affirming for that particular individual. Um, and so, I mean, especially like the benefic of sect can really, um, bolster 
the pleasurable parts of being alive, um, which can then provide fuel for engaging with everything else, everyone else. Um, you know, I don't think that it's necessary to have, you know, a personal relationship, uh, with every single planet. Um, you know, like I have varying degrees of proximity with plants. There are two in particular that I'm just kind of like, hi, okay, bye. <laughs> like I don't spend that much time with them at this point. I'm going to, um, I'm working on some other stuff to feel resourced enough to engage with them. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think that even just with your ascendant ruler, like that's already going to be quite significant. Um, and then if you're somebody who's into like Hellenistic techniques or other kinds of techniques, like there's the Atmakaraka from Jyotish, which is the planet that's at the highest zodiacal degree. And that's one way to kind of see sort of soul orientation. And so to relate with that planet can actually be quite um interesting and useful there's the master of the nativity and the, the lord of the nativity and the manager of the nativity like these are all techniques that kind of come from hellenistic astrology um funny story all four of those planets for me are venus <laughs> um oh, so that makes it easy kind of and also i'm just like wait is this just gonna enable my like jewelry acquisition problem um <laughs> It's like, do there I need to buy that jewelry? There is nothing wrong with being a Venusian bitch. <laughs> I mean, my bank account has some comments on that. Um, but yeah. <laughs> That's what the Saturn self-discipline is for. <laughs> right? I mean, Saturn rules my second. So uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. So that I think that can be quite useful too. It's like ruler of the ascendant and then you know, figuring out whatever those planets are based on those kinds of techniques can be really facilitative of understanding which planets, if you start directly engaging with them, are probably going to be the most responsive and the most um, robustly present in terms of the, um, I don't know, yeah, it's like the immediacy of response, but also the like immediacy of clarification of different parts of one's life. And why that's important, it's not just about using the planets to know what you should do. It's like turning to the planets to comprehend which virtues are yours to cultivate and disseminate in the world. Like that's a huge part of how I understand relational astrology. It's not just make friends with Jupiter so that you can have a juicy ass, right? It's <laughs> like make friends with Jupiter so that you can understand Jupiterian virtues and cultivate them within yourself because every planet's virtues, if people cultivated the planetary virtues that are easiest for them to cultivate, it would just, it just, that's part of occupying your niche as a human to me, right? Yeah. It's honoring your natal promise. Right. You know, it's like you can think of it as cultivating your strengths, but it's like your strengths aren't just to benefit you. Like even if you think you're only benefiting yourself, there are other people who are benefiting. And like when I say other people, I don't limit that to humans. So, yeah. Yay. Yay. I love this. Yeah. I think, um, I think, you know, intuitively as somebody who isn't an astrologer, I would say I wear the student hat sometimes, but... I mostly have picked it up in order to develop relationships with planets, just from the astrological magic perspective. Um, but I always have trouble asking them for things. Like as mm. a theurgist, I mm. have a hard time saying like, 
I would never go to Jupiter and say, I want a juicy ass. Like, it's hard for me to even go to Jupiter and say, like, make my bank account big. Like, I go and I say the entire 20 minute Picatrix prayer. And I'm like, honestly, if you could just fulfill like all of those, it would be nice. (laughs) And a lot of them are like wisdom and being Mm -hmm. able to like help teach others. And I love that Mm -hmm. about Jupiter. He's a guru, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is interesting because like I, I I go through like I've actually been in a in a period for a while now where I have a hard time asking for specific things. Um and I think it's like it's super it's super common. And I also think that there's mm, how do I put this? This is totally me subtweeting myself, by the way. So, <laughs> um, you know, there, there's something about like um, trusting that you will be sufficiently grateful for whatever you receive, um, trusting that you are allowed to ask for nice things um, or nice experiences or aspects of incarnational existence that at minimum will be entertaining. Like how entertaining would it be to be like <laughs> Jupiter? I would like a bigger juicier ass. And then you get a bigger juicier ass and you get that experience. And maybe you decide you don't want a big juicy ass anymore. So you go to Saturn and you're just like, can we like call this down a little bit? <laughs> Whatever. Right. Um, you know, it's like, it's part of, it's part of, um, uh, choosing aspects of experience that you do want to experience which is a self-responsibility thing and it's a self-knowledge thing and it's a self-acceptance thing. Like, is it okay for me to want this? Is it? And if it's not okay, according to who and why? Yeah. And I like developing developing relationships with each of the planets will help you decide, do I actually want this or is this just my trauma? Because you start to learn what is your shadow and what is your true pleasure. Venus says, mm-hmm. this is what you actually desire. Saturn says, well, this was just what you were afraid of. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jupiter is like, this is you avoiding the sensation of a different kind of stability. Because what does a big juicy ass provide? It's like strong propulsion whenever you're walking up hills or stairs. And it's also like a comfortable seat when you're seat- sitting sitting down, right? Like, like there are functional qualities to a big juicy. I don't know why we're talking about big juicy ass so much, but it's hilarious <laughs> and I'm into it. <laughs> you know, it's like there are there are qualities to that experience. And it's like, how do you get a big juicy ass? You don't just like bring up Jupiter and the next thing you know, you wake up the next day like you got a BBL two weeks ago. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, oh no, maybe there's there's an avoidance of the the to be the kind of person who develops a big juicy ass means like being the kind of person who does certain kinds of exercise and eats a certain amount of money, a uh, certain amount of food that might cost more money. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So I think sometimes when it comes to asking for help, there's also a reluctance to um, continue to change your self identity to be the kind of person who has a big juicy ass because you worked for it, not because you, you know, popped out of the womb with like a badonkadonk. I think that's such a great uh, point because one thing I've noticed when people first start doing magic, what they expect is what you were talking about. They like, they expect to do a ritual of some kind and like, yeah, then they will wake up the next day and it'll be sort of like Kafka's metamorphosis. But instead of being Mm -hmm. a cockroach, you now have a big juicy ass. And it's like, no, I've never seen, I've never really seen, maybe there is one planet, Mercury, who sometimes works that way due to the nature of 
who he is. But mm-hmm. a majority of the time, what you're going to notice is an inner shift in you. That all of a sudden you start thinking to yourself, I need to start doing this workout and you like have the motivation for it or you'll Mm -hmm. just be hungrier, hungrier and you'll start craving the food that is going to go Mm -hmm. to your ass. Right. Or you're like scrolling on Instagram and like information that you need for you specifically happens to be in your feed. There you go. Yes. Or like a a product that's like, Mm -hmm. we can do this testing for like where you're like what your dietary needs are. And here's a 50% discount code. And you're like, oh, I can afford it now. Mm -hmm. Um, Things like that. Your favorite bacon goes on sale for like four weeks. (laughs) Wouldn't that be something? I know like uh, I have that happen a lot with books like Mm -hmm. where I want to learn something or I've been thinking about one thing and I've put it into the back of my mind and all of a sudden I'm like reading something that doesn't or shouldn't be adjacent and all of a sudden like there is the missing information I needed. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Or, you know, that that like form of mercurial divination where you ask the question and then you plug your ears and you go to a place where there's a bunch of people and you unplug your ears and the first thing you hear is an answer, right? Variants of which include getting in your car and turning on the radio, (laughs) right? Or shuffle Mancy, like Spotify shuffle or whatever, whatever music digital thing you use. Um, I also love bibliomancy, like specifically bibliomancy. Like I find that especially um, a certain uh, line of my ancestors loves bibliomancy, very effective communication strategy with them. And so it's like, I'll be hanging out and they'll like, they'll be like, go pick up that book and then just open a page. And like, that's, that's what we're trying to tell you, right? Like there, like there's a, there's a stoppage of certain kinds of communication sometimes, but it is a, Oh, I love uh, this. Lubricated by bibliomancy. And so you you came into a better relation with your ancestors by noticing that the divination was more heart to heart in that through that method. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there was something about um how at least for that whatever. Sometimes that line is like totally fine with tarot if I'm not like in visionary state with them, but Sometimes it's like my preconceived notions of the cards get in the way. Um, sure. So, yeah, it's really interesting. No, I feel that because I, I, if I'm trying to do a reading for myself and I'm like, okay, I am too emotionally invested, what I mm-hmm. actually do is Spotify Mansi because I really connect with music and I have so much – music has so, uh, this ability to express each and every song with these like minute nuances that can completely change the answer instead of it just being three of cups we have like seven different versions Mm -hmm. of three of cups just in the song exactly 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 um in some way shape or form um people who are navigating with the consequences of trauma um you know people who are cultivating uh fearlessness after experiences where fear was absolutely the right thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. People who are finding their own, um, finding their own stability after being rendered unstable, like take that in whatever directions you want to take it. Like that's, that's where Saturn's work becomes, um, becomes the work of 
because it's, it's not just charity. It's, um, it's the work of witnessing and mm. alleviating in whatever ways are available to you. Oh, I love that. That Saturn, so part of suffering better and facilitating others' ability to suffer better does seem to involve a level of witness. I've mm-hmm. noticed that through through my own transit and through you know being being there to help other people in their transits is like if people feel like their suffering isn't isn't being acknowledged mm-hmm. that makes it harder to carry. Yes. You don't even have to pick it up for them or fix the problem for them but to witness them and say like you are allowed to like release shame and you're allowed to like break down a little bit and mm-hmm. put put it put the rock down next to you and cry here with me mm-hmm. and then you can pick it up more easily and move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something like sometimes I think like is Saturn inherently judgmental? Like that's one of the um, stereotypes that Saturn has or is judgmentality projected upon Saturn because of our own shame about whatever we think we should, we deserve to be judged for. Cause my experience with Saturn is not, you know, again, like Saturn isn't the moon trying to be like soft and squishy and cuddly, right? Like Saturn's a different beast. Um, but you know, Saturn doesn't turn away from your suffering, right? Like Saturn will see you in your most pained moments and like, Sometimes that's all that's needed is just being like, I see that that really fucking sucks. It makes you feel less alone. Exactly. I mean, humans are inherently relational beings, right? Like we are very, very social, um, which, you know, slightly pains me to say as a 12th house person. (laughs) Just like, am I social? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, but like the, um, like our nervous systems are literally built to co-regulate like there's a limit to how much we can do for ourselves by ourselves. Oh, there's that Saturn word again. Mm-hmm. Limit. And people, I think, mistakenly say that Saturn is like an isolatory factor as well. But I think you're right. In this, in this, it's a back again to that middle way thing. It's mm-hmm. if you are too social, he wants you to spend time alone. If you're already self-isolating, he's going to want you to get yourself out there. (laughs) Exactly. And it's also like sometimes you need to be alone. You know, like there's that um, quote from that person who I'm not going to be able to remember right now, but it's just like, you know, how much of humanity's ills at this point are because of a mankind's inability to sit in a room by themselves. You know, (laughs) yes, 100. Like there there are things that you're not going to learn about yourself or how you want to be a person in the world if you don't have alone time ever, right? If you've never spent Mm -hmm. some kind of time, like even if it's just like five minutes by yourself in the bathroom meditating, right? Like, (laughs) you know, there is, there is a necessity to experience certain forms of aloneness. um, And there's also a necessity to be in connection with like this necessity is another Saturn word and getting curious about and exploring what you consider necessary and what you don't and why is another very important exploration, especially when it comes to like, what are you asking the plan? Like, are you just praying to the planets and being like, yes, I would like to be um, 
in relationship with you. That's it. Okay, bye. Right? Or are you being like, hey, Jupiter, I know you're really good <laughs> at making big juicy asses, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. You know, I think there's there's something to um, necessity, right? So it's like one mm-hmm. of the things that has been really important for me is recognizing the, and like, this is something that uh, my therapist said to me a couple years ago and it devastated me and it devastates me still, which is just because a need has never been met does not mean that it is not a need. And I think especially for Saturnian types, there can be a sort of like, I've made it this long without this, so it's not a need. And it's like, okay, you've made it this long without it, but you don't know what the long-term consequences are of not having it, right? Like you might have been fine so far, And also, are you setting yourself up? You know, it's just like I think about um, like uh, mineral malnutrition or vitamin malnutrition. It's like you can survive a long time without getting sufficient micronutrients. And then at a certain point, your body starts breaking down before it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. It becomes unsustainable to not get your needs met. It becomes unsustainable to keep pretending that your needs aren't your needs. (laughs) And it's not just minerals. It also is pleasure. I'm reading The Deepest Well by Dr. Nadine Harris-Burke, and she's a biochemist. And a lot of what she's talking about is how prolonged exposure to stress, Mm -hmm. even if like you don't think about it for years, can create sudden heart failure and like other things later in life. And that's why if you like know that you've been through or if you had a really traumatic childhood, there are like self-care techniques you need to be doing as an adult so that you like don't have a random stroke when you're 60 and end up paralyzed like on one side of your face for no reason. Right. You know, which then brings up the whole thing of, you know, the the burden of being responsible for things that you could not have opted out of. <laughs> uh-huh. um, yeah. And it's very Saturn, right? Because it is unfair. Yeah. It's like, this is what you've been given, kid. Like, make the best of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Make the best yeah, of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, yeah. That's like, you know, it's, yeah, the way, like, again, when I say it's like if somebody gave me a million dollars in like a cabin in the woods, I would be gone for at least a time period, like part of it is because it's like, I would love to actually do like full and total like relaxation processes to counterbalance my own, like, you know, early life experiences that I did not have the opportunity to opt out of, you know? Um, You know, and so this is another thing that I think Saturn can help, like Saturn that's like not fully or sufficiently engaged with, or is even like allowed to run down the like ascetic path rather than the like strengthening and like, I don't know, what consequences do you actually want kid path? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Which is the, um, how do I want to, how do I want to put this? Um, Can you, can you be self-responsible enough to gather to you the resources that you need to be responsible for those other things too, right? And like, this is especially spicy for me as a Capricorn rising and Saturn ruling both my first and second houses, but it's just like the, you know, Aquarius is always the second house to Capricorn. Wherever you are in your chart, the second house to your Capricorn house is Aquarius. So Aquarius is always resourcing your Capricorn house Mm -hmm. using like derivative houses or whatever. And so there's something about like, 
you know, to me that very direct, like Aquarius is the nervous system. Is your nervous system substantial enough to resource the Capricorn part of your chart, which is where you also establish some of your most enduring, like, like material structures, mm-hmm. right? And it's like nervous system resourcing isn't financial. It's incarnation. So it's like if your nervous system is deregulated, then your ability to carve the appropriate foundation, like going back to that bowl metaphor, mm-hmm. becomes now you've got shaky lines and like maybe it's not mm-hmm. as stable. So some of the milk seeps out and you're not actually able to create the longevity that Capricorn desires so much. Yes, 100%. 100%. I mean, it's like even those studies done, it's like, the choices that people make when they're under high pressure and really stressed out, they are immediately like useful, but they are often long-term degrading Mm -hmm. or depleting in some way. Um, You know, it's like when your nervous system is in fight or flight, fight, flight, freeze, you're not making long-term decisions. You're making short-term survival decisions, which is necessary. But if you're always in that state, even when the circumstances around you don't necessitate you actually being in that state, that's not helpful. You know, it's like being able to have a more robust and nourished and resourced nervous system means that you can actually tell when you need to be in fight, flight, freeze. You can respond better. You can be more responsible, right? So <laughs> love that yeah. punny, very punny. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that then, like looking at the sign that Aquarius is in in your chart, you can say like focusing on this area or like focusing healing on this area might alleviate strain on my nervous system. Like, let's say you have Aquarius in eighth or twelfth is meditation more better for you than somebody whose Aquarius is in the ninth who might want to do mm-hmm. like intense philosophical deep dives into things to feel more grounded? Right. So I would say that your hypothesis is like worthy. Yeah. And like, if I were to like cool. think about <laughs> it, if I were to think about it, I would also want to think about like, what is the embodiment of the ninth house? Not the intellectual version of the ninth house, the embodiment version of the ninth house, because the nervous system is an embodied experience. Like regulation of the nervous system is an embodied experience, not a like opting to not feel your body experience. <laughs> so, you know, like, you know, with the, with the 12th house, it's like, it might look more like, um, the kind of meditation that takes you away from the world. So like maybe regular retreats of some kind, um, or like, you know, literal, like a whole, a whole day or however many hours you can manage of like silence. Um, whereas, you know, with the eighth house, it might be a little bit more around navigating how your body holds grief and how your nervous system holds on to grief. Um, or inherited nervous system patterns, like really getting curious about family patterns when it comes to nervous system situations. Um, you know, mm-hmm. in the ninth house, it might be like, like what is the physical sensation of belief and to deeply really identify what you believe like, how does that affect your nervous system? Like how much more unstable do you feel when you feel like there's nothing worth believing in mm-hmm. that kind of thing? Oh, I love this. And then that in turn kind of gives you the the ability to think clearly and do the analysis that Aquarius does so well. And then you mm-hmm. say, the bowl needs to be this shape or my hand needs to be this steady when I go in for the carve. 
And that yeah. is what is providing resource to the Capricorn. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. I love this. I yeah. learned something new today. Well, I learned Yay. a lot of new things, but that was an interesting <laughs> astrological mm-hmm. technique I learned. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So I am going to begin our transition into the Patreon episode soon. But before I do, do you want to make any last comments on Saturn or anything that you would be like, or relational astrology or interacting with the other other invisible ones, whatever mm. people have so many different words for the spirits or names for the spirits. But if you have anything that you want to say, this is your moment. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I think when it comes to engaging with Saturn, one of the things that I think can be quite useful, especially if people are past their Saturn return already, um, is to remember that the mid to late 20s has a whole bunch of different astrology happening. And oftentimes Saturn is the last bit of that astrology that's actually putting you back together. Um, mm. You know, Saturn Saturn is a concretizer. Um, and I think there's something really important about recognizing the like not just the annoying parts of the um, the immovable right the annoying parts of being here but how concretization and coherence directly facilitates a whole bunch of other stuff um you know without bones we wouldn't we'd have a lot we would have a much harder time moving around in the world. So that structure and that stability is what gives the everything else its final shape. So mm-hmm. if earlier in your 20s you were turned into goo, cocoon mm-hmm. goo, the yeah. Saturn return is is the reemulsifying of the bones back into a structure. Yeah. Exactly. So after the return then do you regrow like muscles and 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 other flesh onto this is this like dr manhattan yeah yeah a bit a bit (laughs) you know there's like there's a and like you know it depends on a whole bunch of different factors um in your own chart and like the context of your life and things like that but i think that there's something quite valuable in um not taking your bones for granted the like the literal bones Um, but also like the bones of your life as they appear or reappear in the aftermath of the Saturn return. Um, You know, they might not, you might not have the flesh on the bones that you want yet, but at least you have the bones. Can't do anything without them. It's very hopeful. Yeah, Yeah, it's so true. Yeah. Like I recognize that I have a considerable amount of Saturn privilege, so I definitely talk from a place like I, I try to communicate from a place of both conscientiousness of that, but also I do think that um, I do think that it's really important to not totalize villainy in any being, um, including Mars and Saturn, um, including other humans, that kind of thing. Um, there's something if you've decided that someone is only bad, you have. Uh, preemptively burned the bridge to relationship. Yeah, and people are complex. There's no such thing as a problem without a gift in its hands, and there's no such thing as a gift without a problem. And all of us contain multitudes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a 
malefic stand too, though, and mm-hmm. I don't have Mars privilege, but I do have Saturn <laughs> privilege. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but no, I love that. Okay, so just to transition into our Patreon episode, 